Hello, and welcome to the ParExcel podcast. I'm Katherine Cloninger, Senior Director of Marketing Strategy and your host for today. I'm genuinely excited about this episode because we have an extra special guest today. Dr. Chris Learn is Senior Vice President of ParExcel's Cell and Gene Center of Excellence, and he's here to opine on what has been a banner year in cell and gene therapies as momentum for what to expect in 2024 in terms of next-generation therapies and gene editing progress. And as our listening audience knows, there were many meaningful approvals in addition to promising pipeline activity in both preclinical and preclinical stages. So today's discussion won't be exhaustive, but it will be representative of the exciting developments in areas where better alignment is needed among scientific, patient, and regulatory communities. So Chris, looking back at 2023, can you discuss some of the crowning achievements that came out of Cell and Gene? Sure. I think really we had a, a banner year in terms of approvals for cell therapies, for gene therapies, and for gene edited therapies. And I think that confluence of approvals by a variety of different regulatory bodies across the globe was instructive to how important these medicines are and the patient populations that have not had a standard of care that really was sufficient or, or necessary for their disease state. So I think as as we go forward, we'll likely see an acceleration in therapies that are being approved for a variety of different intractable indications to date. And you'll continue to see cell therapies, gene-modified cell therapies, gene therapies, gene editing, and RNA being the foundational aspects for that. So we're very excited. We think there's a lot of innovation in this space yet to come. And we are hopeful for our patients that through these different therapeutic areas and indications that are now being treated, this will expand to other disease types and opportunities to treat. Yeah, excellent. So in addition to the scientific innovation that you just mentioned, let's talk about AI for a minute. Sure. So AI is certainly making the headlines and has impacted literally every function of drug development from discovery through post-approval. Can you talk about where it's being applied in the cell and gene space successfully? Sure. So I think it's still a bit early on. I think the first true AI-derived clinical trials and assets are beginning to just show those results. I don't think those results have necessarily been as positive as we would have hoped, but I think from a proof of concept, artificial intelligence is instructing the design of different types of medicines. And eventually, it will play a central role in patient selection, stratification of cohorts, operational enrollment efficiencies based on biomarkers, just a variety of different markers and information that have to be brought together in real time. I think ultimately, we'll also see it impact how operational delivery of these trials is performed. So probably is going to happen in the clinical space that is not necessarily cell and gene, that's not an absolute, but I do think cell and gene will benefit from how this works forward. And to the aspect of genetic medicines, I do think AI is probably already playing a role in the preliminary design and selection of some of those different candidates that may move into the clinic. So a little bit early, I think we will get there in pretty rapid succession, 
And what that truly shows us will probably be like most scientific endeavors. There's going to be an era of trial and error, and then we'll, we'll figure out what works best. So on the topic of trial and error, what risk do you see with sort of more of a rapid acceleration of some of the AI technologies in this space? Sure. I think, you know, the way the clinical trial system is set up currently is that you always, in your early stages of trialing, want to determine safety and tolerability. I think what we are learning in cell and gene and just in science in general is that as these medicines are developed and administered, it's likely not just the near-term safety and tolerability that's going to be important, but that long-term follow-up and the progression of these patients through their disease course as well as the journey with the assets that they've received as therapeutics, that's going to be harder to tell. So I think as you look at things like gene editing or different forms of gene therapy or gene-modified cell therapy, the potential long-term risks could also be there as well. And that's harder to understand, but that probably is going to be the greatest risk in the foreseeable future. No, thank you for that. Speaking of long-term follow-up, that's actually a nice segue into another question that I've got because it's certainly a contributor to cost. And we can't talk about cell and gene therapy without mentioning the challenges of cost, payer coverage, and patient access. Right, right. While we can't control for everything, can you talk about how sponsors can better address these challenges? Sure. I'm going to do it in two segments. One is going to be the development of the asset and what that really means in terms of cost and overall following of a patient. And then the second will be more along the lines of the financial and reimbursement. So in regards to, you know, standard small molecules that we have historically worked with in medicine, that are rapidly broken down and excreted from the body. That's not necessarily true with cell and gene therapies. They're a different type of asset and they hang around for much longer. And that's how they can be so potent in developing these clinical responses that most of us are so interested in. So in that regard, we have to be vigilant about understanding what that long-term data is because simply the types of medicines and therapies we've known to date are typically broken down very rapidly. That's just not the case with cell and gene. From an economic standpoint, these are very expensive medicines because we're developing these in a time and era where a lot of information has to be ascertained, not only to develop the asset, but to preclinically test it and then ultimately move it towards clinic. And I think for many of these sponsor companies that are developing cell and gene therapy assets, it's a very expensive proposition because in many ways, these therapies are living entities unto themselves. They require propagation. They require expansion. All of this is at a very high level technically as opposed to just a chemical reaction to make a pill or, let's say, something that can be infused. So I think that cost is likely going to remain elevated, but there are many that believe that as there's more market entry in terms of cell and gene assets, the demand will be met because supply will increase. Right now, there are very few therapies out there for particular diseases, and in that regard, costs will remain high. Until we get supply to meet that demand, that equilibrium point on pricing is likely to not come down. 
And I think for every claim of unmet need, there's expense, there's uncertainty, and there's patient safety. Can you talk about some of the things in 2023 that didn't go so well that might help inform what the future looks like in terms of development? Sure. And it's a great question because this is not to speak ill of where we're at with cell and gene. I think we are well ahead of the curve in terms of research and development of these types of therapies. The problem is they're very complex forms of therapy. And this is really just sort of the second stanza of research into this field. So we're still largely learning by trial and error. The first stanza being CAR-T and, you know, how some of those earlier assets played out. But as you get into more complexity with gene therapies and, and gene editing, I think what we have seen in 2023 is that it's possible that some of these therapies are not purely curative, they may need to be redosed. So that creates an issue in terms of not only payment, but also redosing and what the immune response of the patient may do to a redosing element. I think safety and tolerability is still poorly understood simply because we're so early in that journey. We're still trying to figure out how a lot of these therapies work or do not work. And then finally, there have been some profile and difficult moments in research and development because long-term follow-up has shown that we must follow these therapies for a, a significant period to understand what secondary risks they truly provide. So you've got a confluence of factors in and above the geopolitical and, and the market forces of 2023 about simply our learning curve in cell and gene and what that may mean in terms of access and pricing and just the ability to accelerate. Chris, that's an excellent answer. It really reinforces how much we have to learn in this space, but it also speaks to how difficult moments don't always translate into long-term failures. But on this same topic, let's talk about CAR-T for a minute. This topic recently made headlines for the concerns about secondary malignancies. Do you see this as a setback or just a cautious pause? I think it's probably just a cautious pause. That's not to make light of the 19 or so cases that US FDA has identified, I believe, with Kim Raya and Yaskarta today. There may be additional ones. But all in all, it's a fairly small percentage of the total number of patients that have been treated with CAR-Ts. And some of the other sponsors in the space have said that they certainly have not seen any secondary malignancies with their CAR-T assets, which I think is positive and good. And we have to remember that with any medicine, including aspirin, there can be untoward side effects in certain patients and long-term consequences. So it's unfortunately an acceptable risk profile that I think we're going to have to proceed with. I did speak with a cancer survivor who confronted this concept of secondary malignancies in CAR-T, and his response was very eloquent and on point, which was, if you're telling me I'm going to risk losing my life now by not taking this therapy or maybe having a reduced risk and additional time in survival down the road because of a secondary malignancy, I'm going to take the CAR-T therapy every time. I think that's instructive for us to understand how important it is for patients to have access to those types of therapies and that in the real world, unfortunately, there is no guarantee 
that it will be completely free of risk or issue. But I'm sure to your point, we will learn more about how to deal with these secondary malignancies in time. And hopefully that will lead to the design of better therapies with fewer risks. You know, excellent. So, so what I'm hearing is, you know, obviously the perception of risk will be very individual, but overall the benefits should outweigh the risk to more patients than not. Yes, ma'am. Foundational to every agency on the planet in terms of how they review and ultimately approve a product for market authorization. So speaking of just the regulatory thinking here, in the future, what do you believe the regulators will require for additional evidence of safety, efficacy, and exploration into subpopulations? You know, it's funny you ask that because I think it will actually be more of the same. At J.P. Morgan earlier this year, the commissioner of the U.S. FDA, Rob Califf, came out and said to sponsors, please quit asking us to discontinue long-term follow-up. It's not going anywhere. The agency truly believes it's necessary and important. So I think really regulators will simply require follow-up as they have been. There may be some additional stringency around how oncologists are being involved in that follow-up period to ensure the safety of these therapies and, and reporting in a timely fashion regarding secondary malignancies. There has been the idea floated that there may have been some underreporting of this. And so that could have confounded some of the initial observations. But I don't think it'll change categorically. I think it'll be more of the same in terms of have a good and important long-term follow-up protocol in place with surveillance on board and the ability to understand when secondary risks arise in those patient populations that have been treated. So there are some clear signals for what to expect. And in other cases, it's still pretty open and uncertain. I think so. I think so. And and again, this is research and development. So in many regards, we don't know what we don't know. But I do think we're accumulating data and real-world evidence very rapidly on these assets because there is such a large continuum of programs out there that will be able to have a good and surveillable data set to make decisions as we go forward. So we don't know what we don't know, but I'm still going to ask you to pull out your crystal ball. Okay. Think about the future. And instead of thinking very specifically just where do you think mm-hmm. the cell and gene community will make the most progress in 2024 and 2025? Two answers here, sort of segmented. First and foremost, I think it's going to be those sponsors that are using mRNA assets. I think the mRNAs are labile transcripts that do not hang around long. They can be redosed without issue, and they can be modulated to change with the disease status in a patient. That is what, in some regards, a perfect medicine may look like. So for those RNA sponsors tackling very difficult and a variety of diseases, I think you're going to see a lot of demonstrable progress and success. I think the second part of that answer is how we continue our understanding of gene editing, both base editing and and prime editing. These are two different forms of gene editing at this time that really give the opportunity to provide a root cause solution to disease. You go in, you absolutely remove or 
fundamentally change the genetic lesion back to a wild type state or a state of health. And therefore, you forego potentially the need for further treatment or medicines. That's game changing. I don't think we're there yet. Obviously, with Vertex's Exocell, their gene edited cell therapy for sickle cell disease that was just recently approved. That is, I think, the foundation that much of medicine will be looking at as we go forward. Can you truly? turn back the clock or simply change the genetic code in these patients to health as opposed to disease. So early days, but a lot of exciting progress ahead. I think so. I I think we're right at that opening element of how medicine will evolve over the next 50 to 100 years. And if you don't believe that RNAs and gene therapy and gene editing play a central role in that, I think it's, it's hard to understand where else that data may come from. So very enthusiastic about it. We will still have some missteps. Unfortunately, that's just to be expected. Hopefully, the confluence of information and knowledge that we have will reduce that probability and that we will have, by and large, good and durable outcomes for our patients. Well, thank you so much, Chris. As always, you've provided excellent insights for us to consider. Of course. And really, as our discussion comes to a close today, I just want to thank you for sharing your passion with us. And I'll remind our audience to tune in regularly for future episodes of the Parkcell podcast and our new 2024 series, Preparing for a Cell and Gene Future. And goodbye for now. 